Lord, we are so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that we're your children. We're thankful that we are chosen, not forsaken. God, you have picked us out and called us by name, and we are your children, and we proclaim that truth today. God, we thank you that we belong to you. And Lord, I pray that as, as I preach, Lord, I'm a broken vessel, Lord. I, I, don't, I don't have the um, what it takes to, to stand up here, but God, you, you've called me to this, and this is your word that we're preaching. So Lord, I pray that as I stand up here, that you deem me faithful, um, that I teach your word as it's written, and that you would impact hearts, Holy Spirit. That um, there be things that are said this morning that drive deep into our souls, that call us out of sin, that call us back to truth, that, that confirm in us um, the truths of the gospel, Lord, that we would know the Father's love. We know the kind of love the Father has for us. Um, that we would be called children of God, and so we are. That's true about us, God. I pray that that would resonate deeply today. We love you. We pay things in your name. Amen. All right, y'all have a seat. Man, y'all saying good, or well, in Georgia. Y'all saying good uh, today. Y'all saying better in the first service, which is unusual. So that's, that's great. It's a good podium. So uh, we're on sermon three of a five-sermon series called... It's up there. Foundate, there we go. Y'all are smart. Foundations. Uh, and what Andrew and I did is we looked through the New Testament and looked for every time the Bible said, this is a foundation for our faith. And by far and away, the most times is talking about Jesus, right? Uh, which makes sense. That's really comforting. And so we spent the first um, little bit talking about Christ as our foundation. We spent the first two sermons on that. But the next three mentions of foundations is all referring to the church. And so we're going to spend the next three sermons today and the next two weeks on the foundation of the church. And when we looked through these foundation passages, when it said, this is a foundation, we found that it answered three questions about the church. The first one that we're going to take, tackle this week is, who are we to be? Who is the church to be? The second is, what are we to stand on? And the third is, how are we to live? So who are we to be? Identity. What are we to stand on? Truth. And how are we to live? Practical application in our Christian living. So today we'll be in 2 Timothy 2, 19-21. That's our foundation passage for the day. Um, and we're going to be camping out there for the day. But I'm going to pull an Andrew. I'm, we're not going to read it yet. Uh, before we do, I'm going to zoom out. And what, what we've been doing each Sunday is zooming out and looking at the bigger, broader picture of this. Because all of this fits into a bigger narrative. And last week, Andrew talked about the story of your salvation in the gospel, Right? How Christ died for you, and, and, you were, and you were redeemed, and then you accepted that through faith and repentance. So um, there's also a story going on, though, with the church, right? With God's people. Since the beginning, God has been looking for a people to be his own, to bear his image, to proclaim his glory, to live as his sons and daughters, to enjoy his presence, to walk in his ways, to be set apart as holy, to be useful for his hands, and to be ready for every good work. And he made a covenant um, with a nation called the nation of Israel. And he, he brought them out of Egypt and he made a promise with them on Mount Sinai that he would be with them as their God if they would walk with them as his people. And what did they do? Five days in, they make a golden calf. They make an idol because they weren't content with an invisible God. They wanted a God that they could see and hear and touch and, and know. And so they made a golden calf and, and God had them destroy the calf and he, and he rebuked them and he gave them the law. So that they would know how to live. So they'd know, hey, you don't build a golden calf. You worship an invisible God, not a visible God. You don't bow down before something else. So he gave them the law. Well, the law didn't help because of a big thing called sin. They kept rebelling against the law again and again and again. And what they said to God with Samuel is they said, hey, we'll quit doing this. We'll keep rebelling if you give us a king. We need a king. 
And so Samuel said, well, God's your king. And they said, well, that's not enough for us. We want a king we can see and hear and touch and, and that we can, and it's like the other nations. And so Samuel said, okay. And so God gave them kings, king after king after king after king. The kings didn't fix their problem. There was something called sin. They continued to rebel against God again and again. And so God raised up prophets. These were men, hundreds of men that would come to the nation of Israel and they would call them out and be God's messengers. They proclaimed truth to Israel and they would call them back, but, but they killed and destroyed and didn't listen to God's prophets because of something in their lives called sin. And over and over again, we have this story of God and his set-apart ones, his nation, his people who continue to turn against him and rebel against him. You see, they were set apart Israel was by God. God had set them apart, but they were not setting themselves apart for him. They were set apart by him, but they were not setting themselves apart for him, but they were going their own way. And so when Christ came, he came first to Israel. He said, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But Israel, for the large part, rejected him. They turned away from him. They crucified him. And so Christ opened the doors, which was his plan all along, to all nations. He said throughout the Old Testament again and again and again that I'm going to call all nations to myself. And so now you and me, most of us Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are now part of his church, this manifold wisdom and glory of God as his church. And, and now he has the church, right? His set-apart ones, his holy ones who bear his image, proclaim his glory, live in his presence, walk in his ways, right? But we have a problem, don't we? Called what? Sin, right? And it's still there. We're still prone to wander, prone to build idols and golden calves in our lives. And that is where we find ourselves in 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 21. So context before I read is Timothy, Paul left Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus. And, and Paul told him that people were going to, false teachers were going to come up and, and lead many astray. But they didn't know what he was talking about. And so they're chugging along, doing pretty well. And Timothy, all of a sudden, it starts to happen. False teachers, even from among their own elders, start rising up, teaching false doctrine, and leading people astray from Jesus. So Timothy probably writes Paul a letter and says, help, right? Like, what's happening? This is, these are God's chosen ones, like his children, his elect, the ones he's called for his, his name and his glory and his, all that stuff. Like, this is them. What is happening, right? And so Paul responds. And in this letter, what he has just done is he's just talked about these men and women who are leading others astray, and then he's even upsetting the faith of some in our church. So Timothy's watching people go astray, and Paul responds like this in verse 19. But despite all of that, despite these people leaving the faith, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. So what is this foundation? God's firm foundation stands. What is it? Well, first when I studied this, I thought it was referring to Jesus, that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, and the church is built on him. But actually, this is talking about the church itself is his foundation. Sometimes the New Testament will mix up metaphors a little bit. The church is its foundation. In 1 Timothy 3.19, Paul is writing along the same lines to Timothy, saying the church is the pillar and buttress, the foundation of the truth. And so, again, he's saying the church is his foundation. And what is Paul saying in this statement? Well, he's saying a couple of things, and it's kind of repetitive. He's first saying that as a foundation, the church is dug down deep. It's set in the ground, right? It's there. It's, it is foundational. The second thing he's saying is that it is a firm foundation. It's immovable. It's firm. In, in uh, John 10, 38, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. So what he's saying is this foundation of the church is firm. It's, it's not going to get snatched up. It's not going to get dug up. It's not going to get moved. It's staying still. And not only that, is it a firm foundation, but it still stands. What Paul is saying is, is that Timothy, before all these false teachers came, the church stood firm. And after the dust settles, and, and these men and women and children leave the church, and the dust settles on that, guess what? The church will still be standing. God's firm foundation will still stand. It's unshakable. Hebrews 12, 28 says that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the church, God's firm foundation. Not only that, not only is it a firm foundation that stands, but it's God's. This foundation is the church, you and me, are built and maintained by God himself. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So not only did he pour the concrete of the foundation and wait for it to set, not, he also maintains it, he keeps it up, he's the perfecter of our faith, so therefore we can trust it. And finally, he says not only all that, not only is it a firm foundation that stands, but it's got a seal on it. We're going to slow down for a second here. It's got a seal on it. And this is kind of where Paul camps out for the next few verses. So let's look at a seal. What is a seal? A seal is basically that wax thing that kings would put their signet ring into and would verify this there. And a seal had three purposes. A seal meant protection. So something that was sealed was under the protection of the king. So like the tomb of Jesus, right? It was sealed. It didn't mean they took like caulk and put it around the stone, right? It means he put a stamp on it. And said, this is the king's, it's under my protection. If anyone messes with this seal, they've got me to contend for. So that meant that the thing that was sealed was as safe and secure as the king was powerful. It was secure as the king was powerful. Second thing a seal meant was authenticity. Something sealed was guaranteed authentic by the king. So this, they would seal edicts, right? They would send out like a proclamation to everyone. And it would have the seal on it. And that meant this is genuine. This is from the king. This is true. I stand behind it. So a seal meant that it was as genuine as the king was truthful. Something sealed was as genuine as the king was truthful. And the third thing a seal means is it meant ownership. Something that was sealed was owned by the king. So it was as safe as the king was good. If you were a servant of the king and you were sealed by him, you belonged to him, you maybe had a brand on you that had his seal, then you were as safe as that king was good. You belonged to him. So let me ask you, who does the Bible say is the seal of the church. Right? Holy Spirit. There we go. A lot of people outside. I think I should say Jesus here. No, the Holy Spirit is the seal of the church. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of heaven for us, for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So what is Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying that God's church is secure and safe and guaranteed and firm and it stands and it will stand up against the gates of hell, the attacks of Satan, the ravages of sin, the pain of unfaithfulness, the confusion of doubt. It will stand up against the depths of depression, the grief of deep loss, everything. There is nothing that can uproot, shake, diminish, take away from the foundation of God, which is his church. That's what Paul said in Romans 8.38, right? 
And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you, church, from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Nothing at all. And that is true for you and for me today. That is true for his church. If you have been born again, then you are as secure as God is powerful, right? You are authentic as God is truthful, and you are as safe as he is good. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is powerful, truthful, and he is good, and we can rely on that. So, Man, great encouragement, right, for Timothy. Like, awesome, Paul. That's what you mean by all that. That's really good, right? I still got a problem, right? Because this church that you just told me was really secure, I just told you it's not secure. I just told you there are people leaving, like they're departing from the faith. That's not secure. They're dropping like flies over here. What are you talking about, right? That's the, that's the sense we get from Timothy. So we have our question, who is the church? Who is the church supposed to be? Who are these people that God has been looking for and set apart to bear his image and proclaim his glory and be his children and and walk in his ways and and, and live in his presence? Who are these people? So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the second half of the sermon looking at this seal and answering the question, who who is the church? How How does Paul describe the church in this passage? So he describes it with the seal, okay? Now the seal is basically imagine a, a, a stamp, a wax stamp, and it's got two parts, okay? Usually a seal by a king would have symbols on it, and those symbols or words would mean something different. It would have a couple of different things. So like Caesar's seal had something about the greatness of his military, and so what he was saying is that this is protected by the greatness of my military. I can back this seal up. So a seal, in order to be whole, in order to be true, had to be unbroken. When you break a seal, the seal no longer stands, right? So this seal, what Paul is saying is it has two separate parts, and both of these parts need to be intact for the seal to be real. So the two parts are this. The first is that the church is set apart by God. And the second part is the church is set apart for God. So we're going to look at those two in turn. So first, the church is set apart by God. So let's look at verse 19, midway through that verse. Paul quotes something here, and this is the first half of the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So I want us to to meditate on this, ruminate on this for a second. Let's let's kind of chew it over. The Lord knows those who are his. He says the Lord, that, that word means master. And he uses it a couple of times later in this passage. The master, the one who owns you, knows. That word knows is gnosko. It's a deep, intimate, relational, personal knowledge. It's it's what Christ meant when he said, he said, um, Then we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and all this. And Christ said, depart from me. I never knew you. He said, I knew you, but I didn't know you. I didn't know you with that deep and real and authentic and personal and relational type of love and knowledge. So the Lord knows. Who does he know? He knows those who are his, those who belong to him, his elect, his chosen ones, his people who he set apart for his glory. God knows them. And this passage actually comes, this quote comes from Numbers 16. Anybody read that recently? Numbers 16? I did last week for this. Um, Numbers 16, and it's a really obscure passage where there's a mutiny against Moses and Aaron, who are God's chosen leaders of God's people. And they would go in and out of the Holy and Holies and speak with God and hear from God. And so there's a dispute. And basically the people are saying, how do we know that y'all are God's chosen people? There's nothing on you. Like, you don't have something written on your forehead. It's like, how can we know that that's true? And Moses responds, and he says this, The Lord knows 
those who are his. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near. The Lord knows those who are his. And let me ask, why did Paul quote this weird story? Because what ends up happening in the story is that the 250 men who caused mutiny were like burned up by fire of the presence of God, and that ground opens up and swallows them. Like, it's crazy. Why does Paul quote such an obscure story? He's telling Timothy that just as Moses and Aaron were set apart by God, that he has set apart his church, his holy people. And not the church, little C church, like every Christian everywhere, okay? Because that's little C church is every Christian everywhere. It's everyone that names the name of Christ. Everyone in this room, everyone in churches around town, everyone in the world. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He's, that's, that's what theologians call the visible church. The visible church is the church you can see with your eyes, the people that gather on Sunday mornings to worship God. Theologians have another name. It's called the invisible church. It's basically the, the, those that are truly born again. It's those in this room and around the world that truly know Jesus. And not everyone in the visible church is part of the invisible church. There are many who will depart from the faith. These men and women that, that Timothy's talking about, they were part of the visible church. They were not part of the invisible church. They didn't truly know God. And it showed in their lives as they departed from the faith and their faith was upset and overturned. So this is, the, this is talking about the big C, visible church, those that are born again. Because the New Testament is clear that just like Judas, all those in the church are not the church, right? Um, and we won't know who it is. Uh, I don't know if y'all remember. So we had the 12 disciples and then Judas. And I don't know if you've seen The Chosen, anybody? I haven't seen it, but I imagine that it's, there's foreshadowing that Judas is going to betray Christ. Am I right? Oh, you can kind of tell that he's got something going on. Well, the disciples had no clue. Like zero clue to the point where the night that Judas betrayed Jesus, they're sitting around a table and Jesus said, one of you is going to deny me tonight. And they're looking around and they're like, who? They look at Judas, like not Judas. Like, who, who's, going to, who's going to deny him? And Christ says, the one who I dip this morsel in the cup and hand it to will deny me. And he dips the morsel in the cup and he hands it to Judas and Judas eats it. And they're still like, who's going to deny you? Who's it going to be, right? And then Jesus said, tell Judas, Yo, go do what you're going to do. And Judas leaves. And the disciples are still like, who is it? Who's going to deny you, right? They had no clue. Why, why do I bring that up? Because it was, they couldn't tell. They had no idea who was going to be faithful and who wasn't. That's, that's the difference. Like God knows. Only God knows. God knows who his people are. And that's why for us, guys, we are not called to look around us and judge whether the person sitting next to us or across from us or at another church is truly a Christian or not. We don't need to be using words of like, oh, he's a real Christian. He's, a, he, he's legit. He's whatever. We, we are not the judge of that. Who knows what someone else's soul entails? It's okay to look at the fruit of someone's life and say, man, I don't need to hang out with that person right now. But we do not need to be judging because we don't know. The Lord knows those who he is. And yes, it will manifest in their life. And you probably have a pretty good clue about some people, but that is not ours to do. That is the Lord's decision. But also, on the flip side, God has called you and me to examine our own souls to look at our own lives and to see, am I in the faith? Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What does he mean? He means that those who fall away already had an unbelieving heart, but they didn't take care. They didn't dig in and look, God, do I really know you? And then that led them to fall away. Um, first, or 2 Corinthians 13 says, Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That is a practice that a Christian needs to do. If you haven't done that in a while, and maybe you're wandering into sin, or you're, or you're not sure if the fruit of your life matches up, take a season to ask the Lord and, and look at Scripture and say, what does the Scripture say that my life should look like, and what does it look like? 
and, and, and including grace in that, and the salvation of the Lord in that, and am I really in Christ? And I promise you, the Lord will answer that prayer. And he will meet you in that moment and, and, and show you that and bring you confidence or he'll bring you to a place just like, I need, to, I need to actually accept Christ. I need to actually surrender my life to him and receive grace for the gospel because I haven't done that yet. And so that's the call of the Christian. But Paul, what Paul is saying to Timothy is this. I know you're confused, Timothy. I know you have no idea who the elect are. I've, I know you have no idea who God's chosen ones are. I know you, you don't know who's going to depart from the faith tomorrow or next week or next year. You have no earthly idea, and I know it's confusing, but God knows. And that's enough for you. You don't need to know. And this is what um, Scripture says about his church, and I imagine Paul saying this to Timothy. Your church, they're precious. God's chosen ones are precious in his eyes and honor. That he has loved them with an everlasting love. That he's called them by name and they are his. He's chosen them before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he has predestined them for adoption as his sons and daughters. His heart's desire is that all men and women and children come to know him, but there will be many who depart from the faith. That he knows his sheep by name. And his sheep know his voice and they follow him. He is the God who hears their cry. He is the God who sees. He is the God who knows your heart and your thoughts. Down to your, your this is the center of your being, God knows his children. And Timothy, you see the outward appearance, but God, he sees straight through to the heart. And he has set his seal on those who are genuine. And nothing, nothing, nothing will ever be able to take them out of his hands. And in a nutshell, Paul's answer to Timothy is, Timothy, you don't need to know who is truly true. You don't need to know who the real church is. You don't need to know who actually knows Christ because I know, and that is sufficient for you. So you keep being faithful. You keep doing your ministry. You keep laboring on for the sake of the church around you, and let me handle. Let me call people back to myself. Don't worry that, that these false teachers are going to lead astray those who have truly known me. I've got them. They're safe. They're secure. They're in my hands. The question is, uh, how does that apply to you, <laughs> right? Because you're not a pastor. You're not standing up here wondering, like, who's real and who's not. Now, I don't think that. Andrew doesn't either. But, but that's not your job. But it does apply to you. It applies tremendously to you. Because, Christian, God knows you by name. He's picked you out, handpicked you. It says, before the foundation of the world, he knew you. And he's given you his Holy Spirit, and he leads you as a shepherd leads his sheep. He knows your voice, and you know his. He's predestined you ordered all of creation to come around making sure that you come to know him and love him and follow him for the rest of your life. That is good news for us because let me tell you, I have a heart that's prone to wander. I have a heart that's prone to believe lies. I have a heart that's prone to go my own way, having confidence in a God that knows me, loves me, I'm safe and secure in him. It's good news for me. So I came to that word. I'm going to camp out on it for about two minutes. Predestined, Okay. Now, some of you started sweating in your seat when I said that, all right? I, I'm not going to dig into predestination, okay? It became a really inflammatory thing in the church with big arguments around the mid-2000s, 2005 or so. Um, we're not going to dig all the way into that. It, it is a secondary theological issue for us. It's not primary. It's not gospel needed. It's secondary. It's something that we hold with an open hand. Um, but I, I do want to pull back the veil a little bit and uncomplicate it because there are these two sides of this. Like, did God choose you or did you choose him, Okay. Is it God's sovereignty over salvation or is it man's responsibility? And there's a mystery. Yes, both, right? It's both God's sovereign and, and we are also responsible for, for accepting him and coming to him and repenting in him and walking with him all the days of our life, right? But there's something crucial here, right? 
Um, that you were set apart by God before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. You must believe that. That is in Scripture. That you were predestined to know him. That God has worked events so that you would know him. That means that before you were born, God had you in mind. Let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of you have had coincidences you couldn't have planned that led you to come to know Jesus? Anybody in the room? Raise your hand. Coincidences you couldn't have planned that led you to come to know Jesus. How many of you have had deep conviction that you couldn't drum up in yourself that have caused you to seek God? At any time in your life, how many of you have had that? How many of you have been struck to the heart by a sermon before that everyone else seemed deaf to except for you? It seemed like God was talking to you. Anybody in the room? How many of you have no idea why you know God and yet your brother, sister, or parents don't? You're raised in the same household. Anybody? How many of you had people come into your life at just the right time all along the way to nudge you towards the Lord, to call you out in your sin, to lead you closer to Him? Anybody in the room? How many people continue to have people come in your life and call you back onto the path? Anybody? Man, I could list 20 or 30 people in my life right now who, if it weren't for them, I don't know where I would be. Where'd they come from? Were they coincidences? They just happened to come across my path? No, God sent those people. All of this is grace. Every bit of it. The reason you're a Christian is grace. And all of it is God. And all of it is to show that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast, and so that no man, no one, may have confidence in their own selves for their salvation. Now, God didn't choose you because you were handsome, or beautiful, or smart, or clever, or educated, or, or athletic, or that you figured out the religious puzzle and other people didn't. Like, none of that. Like, God chose you because he chose you, because he loved you from the foundation of the world, and that's why you are his. Well, listen, I know for some of you this concept of God's sovereignty over salvation is a little bit cloudy, and there's so much mystery to our choice and God's choice. But I do know that you will either live your life fearing your own fickle heart, or you'll live your life fearing God, who controls and owns and loves your heart. Either you'll put your trust in the devotion and faith of your own soul, or you'll put your trust in the devotion and faithfulness of God towards you. Let me tell you, that's a much more firm foundation in your own confidence, and your own faithfulness. That is the foundation the church is built on. That even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Two weeks ago, uh, Molly Flick and I both got up at the same time in the middle of service, and we scooted out the back real quick. And Andrew, I'm sure, was like, what in the world is going on? Like, by the way, we notice when y'all get up, um, we don't do anything. We keep talking, but we're thinking internally, like, what's going on? What's happening? Uh, is, this, is something on fire? You know, especially when two people get up at the same time and rush to the doors, right? And we got up because we heard, I heard John, my, my 17-month-old, screaming his head off, right? Just screaming, right? And, and usually if you hear an infant screaming in the nursery, he's not there today, it's my son, okay? If you hear a, a two-year-old screaming, it's Denver, uh, Andrew's son, right? Like, we're the, we're the problem. We'll own it, okay? We're always the issue, right? Um, and so I, I get to the nursery, and I open the door, and I look in, and peek in, you know, just in case it's not him, and he is just, he looks like he just went through a haunted house. Like, he is losing it, like, terrified. And Kyle Osborne, if y'all know Kyle, it's like his first or second time in there, I think, and he's holding him, like, smiling, but like, an uncomfortable smile, like, what do I do? Right? And John, of course, set off the alarm bells in the nursery. Like, all the other kids are sympathy crying for John. And he's just losing his mind. And Lucy Flick is over there crying. And, and you know, Molly gets there right after me. And so, so I heard him. And so I take him out of, you know, Kyle's hands and, and rescue him from Kyle. And, um, and, and I was thinking about this when I was prepping, prepping this week. Is I, 
I heard my son's cry over like 15 screaming babies through a set of, now the nursery's over here today, but it was over there, through a set of wooden doors, down a hallway, around a corner, through another set of wooden doors, over the out-of-tune singing of all you goons, right, to the front row, I heard my son's voice, right? I knew it immediately. That's him. I hear him, and I went out. And if you know my son, it's not surprising because he is loud. But Lucy Flick's not loud, and Molly immediately knew, that's my daughter. What did I do? What did we do? We got up immediately. We left the room. We went, and we rescued them. We heard their cry, and we rescued them. As soon as he saw me, he recognized me, and he calmed down, right? And in the same way, think about God towards you. How much more does he know your voice? How much more does he respond when he hears your cry? How much more does he come to your aid? How much more, child of God, does your father know you? And that is the foundation of confidence that the church is built on. That even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So, foundation is built on grace. That we are set apart by God. Not by our own goodness, our own faithfulness, our own wisdom, our own holiness. We're set apart by the grace of God. We're going to go on to the second part of the seal, that we are set apart for God. And, and man, I, I wish I could spend two hours on this. I, I love this passage. Maybe we get a building, we have a class, and I'll teach it, and like five of y'all can come, it'll be great. So we're set apart for God. So look at the second half of verse 19. So we have the first quote, and then we have the second half of the seal. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's ruminate, let's meditate on that for a second. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. So let this command, you, every, and who? Everyone, every single person, what, what people? Those who name the name of the Lord. So now we're talking about the visible church. Anyone in this building that names the name of the Lord, what should they do? Depart from iniquity. That word depart means to leave. And the sense is that you leave and you never come back, right? Anybody remember Gollum, Lord of the Rings? I, I used his voice last service, and Andrew shook his head. Is he still in here? No, he's not. You know, Gollum, he says, leave now and never come back. Right? You remember that? Anybody? <laughs> All right. Um, I might not be here next week. Uh, so Gollum, right? Leave now and never come back. That's the call of this. It's like everyone in this building, everyone that's a visible church coming to worship God, depart, leave now and never come back from your iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity is anything that sets ourselves at odds with the Lord. It's sin in our heart. It's idols in our lives. It's, it's surrounding ourselves with, with defiling things, sinful things. Depart, leave, and never come back. That is the sense we have. So let's keep reading because Paul begins to unpack this half of the seal with another metaphor. Verse 20, now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Paul's painting a picture. So let's think about this for a second. He's painting this image of this great house. And when he means great house, he's talking about like a wealthy home. And it's got all these vessels in it. Um, and these vessels, a vessel is anything that carries something else, like a, a glass of water or something like that. And there's two types of vessels. There's dishonorable vessels, and there's honorable vessels. The dishonorable vessels are things like a chamber pot. Anybody know what a chamber pot is? Anybody? I'm not going to really explain it. It's basically like a handheld bathroom. So a chamber pot they used to have in those times, and then an, an honorable vessel would be like a bowl, right, that was, that was set on the shelf, and it, and it was used to be eaten out of, and it's clean, and it's on the shelf, it's set apart, and it's ready. So you can pull that bowl off, you can fill it with cereal and some milk, and eat out of it, and everything's good, right? It's set apart, it's holy, it's honorable, it's for honorable use. But then he gives us an interesting twist. He says in verse 21, 
that if the dishonorable vessel cleanses itself, purges itself, cleans itself, it can become an honorable vessel for honorable use. So that chamber pot purifies itself, cleans itself out, scrubs it down. It can be put on the shelf for your bowl of cereal, right? That that dishonorable vessel can now be used for honorable use, for eating and drinking and ready for the master's honorable uses, right? So what does all this mean? The metaphor means that in a great house, it's the church. This great house is the church, the little c church. All Christians who name the name of Christ everywhere. In the church, there are vessels. What are the vessels? The vessels are Christians, right? Um, so in the church, there are vessels. Now, the vessels are Christians in the church. There's also anyone in the church. Like, you are all a vessel, right? And God's desire is that we, his people, who are set apart by God, that we set ourselves apart for God. That those of us that are already set apart by God, that we set ourselves apart for God so that we can be holy, useful to do his will, and ready for every good work. But Paul is saying that there are many people in the church who are not set apart as holy. There are many people who are not useful. There are many people who are not ready. They're dishonorable vessels. They have taken their vessel and they've used it for dishonorable things. And so therefore, they're not ready for the, the master's bowl of cereal. Like they're, they're not prepared for him. Why? Because they filled their vessel with dishonorable things. They've made themselves dishonorable with their lives. Um, I have a pet peeve. One pet peeve. And caveat, I hope I don't offend anyone with this pet peeve, because some of you might do this, and I love you and care about you, and this is me, not you, so just wanted to say that on the front end. So my pet peeve, my one pet peeve, I'm sure I have none other, uh, is lipstick left on the rim of a cup or a straw, okay? Um, I can't do it. I can't manage. I, I, it immediately, it, my stomach twists when I see it. I, I just can't do it. And, and I was telling uh, the elders this six months ago, and the next week, I kid you not, we're in a restaurant Henry's and Pooler getting food, and we all get our coffee, and Mike Collins, um, he looks down at his coffee cup, and then he goes, which is a look Mike does a lot, and then he like turns his coffee cup and moves it towards me, and it's got a big old crimson U on it, right? Like a perfect lip right on the rim of his coffee mug, right? And I'm, and I'm just like, oh, like I can't, I can't drink my coffee, my, my breakfast got cold, I didn't eat a bite, like I could not handle it. Why? Because it was dishonorable. It was unholy, like it wasn't ready for the master to drink coffee out of, right? It was, it was deemed unuseful, right? In that moment, it was useless for the master, right? A Christian, in the same way, a Christian who is filling their lives with unholy things that is, that is dishonoring themselves um, with sinful desires or questionable practices is, is not clean and useful and ready for God. They've got lipstick on their rim, right? You are not ready for the Lord's use. So the question is, what do I do with this? What do I do? How do I become a man or a woman or a kid who is useful, who is set apart for God? Let's look in the middle of this passage. Verse 21, Paul tells us, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Let me read that again. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Now, I have an immediate problem with that. Anybody else got a problem with that sentence? I do. It sounds like heresy, right? Who cleanses us from our sins? Oh, come on. You can say Jesus. It's right. Jesus, right? And, and, and do, you, do you cleanse yourself from your sins? No. 
Did he wash you by his blood? Yes. Are you clean? If you're a Christian, are you forgiven and cleansed once for all by the blood of Christ? Yes, you are. And so what is this nonsense that Paul's talking about? If anyone cleanses himself, like how do we cleanse ourselves when Christ has already made us clean? He's talking about a different type of cleansing. He's talking about that seal. Whoever names the name of the Lord, depart, leave and never come back from iniquity. All right, everybody raise your hand for a second. Everybody in the room. All right, there we go. All right, I'm about to do a hand raise exercise. I just want to make sure they're working. Okay, your arms are working. Okay, good. Um, you're about to raise your hand a lot. Um, raise your hand if you've sinned this week. Okay, I'm looking at y'all. Uh, raise your hand if this weekend alone, think about these, you made a conscious choice to follow your own wants and desires rather than honoring God. Anybody? I did. Raise your hand if in the last month you've taken part in anything, looked at anything, listened to anything that was displeasing to God. Anybody? Anybody watch Netflix? Seen social media on Instagram? Y'all's hands better go up, right? Some displeasing stuff on there. Um, Raise your hand if you missed opportunities to share the love of Christ, demonstrate his love, just care for someone. Maybe it was a neighbor, coworker, spouse, roommate, your kids, because of your own selfishness. Anybody? Last night, me. Last night with my son, right? Raise your hand if you spend hours of your day in total forgetfulness of God not caring about his will or desires for you, thinking about your own desires. Raise your hand. Now, in those moments when you were going your own way, when you were in sin, when you were partaking something that was really hurting your own soul, when you were, when you were selfish, when you were forgetful of the Lord and going your own way, were you useful to the master of the house and ready for every good work? Were you? No. In those moments, when I was angry at my son last night for not getting to sleep and not taking his medicine, and I was, I was fuming, I was not ready for God's good uses. I was not ready to just lavish him with the love of Jesus in that moment, right? I was fuming. I looked like little Jack-Jack, right, when he catches on fire in The Incredibles. Like, I was just on fire. I was not useful. And whatever, to whatever degree you are walking in sin, in those moments, we are not useful to the Lord. Right? We are not set apart as holy and useful. But were you, were you forgiven and cleansed and washed and pure and a child of God? Absolutely you were. These are two different truths. Remember when Jesus went to wash Peter's feet, going back to the Last Supper, and they're all gathered around a table, and no one, brought the, no one hired a foot washer. And so Jesus gets up to wash their feet. It's a really incredible scene. And he goes around one by one to wash their feet. And Peter, what, is, what does Peter say when Jesus gets to him? You will never wash my feet, Lord. Right, that's very Peter of him. You'll never wash my feet. Get out of here. You can't do this. Don't humble yourself like that. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And then Peter like backpedals hard. And he says, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash my head. Wash all of me. And Jesus says something really interesting here. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. Doesn't make any sense to me. Like he's completely clean, but his feet, his feet aren't clean. But he's completely clean, but his feet aren't clean. What is, what is Jesus saying? Well, in that time, the, the Jewish people, bathing was a, a rite, ceremonial rite of purification. That when priests would go into the Lord's service, they would go into these bathing pools, these purification pools, and they would go under the water, they'd immerse themselves, baptizo, and they would come out of the water, and it would symbolize being washed clean from sin, and it would symbolize being born again. Into, into, into a new life, right? And that's why we as Christians, we only get baptized once, right? Because one time, once and for all, you were born a new life after you're a Christian. Maybe you got baptized before Christ, but after, after you're a Christian, you get baptized once, and no matter if you stray, if you wander, if you sin, if you run away, you don't get baptized again. Like, we don't have a perpetual baptismal. It's like, hop on through, buddy. You sin this week, right? No, we were cleansed once and for all, but he says, you do need your feet cleaned. What was that about? 
Well, back then, uh, foot cleansing had nothing to do with ceremony or, or, or ritual pure, purity. It had everything to do with fellowship. You'd walk into a house and your feet would be dirty. And, and they ate on tables on the floor, and it was nasty to have nasty feet at the table. And so in order to be ready for fellowship with the master of the house and to be ready to do whatever you were there to do, you had immediately to get your feet washed. And foot washing was to wash away the, the daily grime that built up on your feet to make you ready for fellowship and for use in that house. And in the same way that we have been washed from sin by the blood of Jesus, we sin daily. Though you are holy, like God has set you apart as holy, you live in unholy ways every day of your life. You stray from the Lord and you wander away. You build up idols just like the Israelites do. And we have need for perpetual foot washing. You don't need to be re-cleansed from your sin, but you do need to reconnect with the Lord, be useful to the master. And we do that through confession, repentance, and obedience. Listen, if you've been a Christian any manner of time, you'll find this out, that that is just the life of the Christian over and over again. Confession, God, I... I've sinned. I've really blown it. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I know you've forgiven me because of Christ on the cross. Can I come back in fellowship with you? And then repentance. I'm going to repent metanoia. I'm going to change meta, my mind, noia. I'm going to change my mind about this sin, and I'm no longer going to continue that direction. I'm going to go this way now, and then obedience. I'm going to continue to walk with the Lord. And then two hours later, it's like, gosh, Lord, I'm sorry. I I said this in a way that was dishonoring to you and dishonoring this person. Would you forgive me? Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. Would you help me to obey you? And over and over again, as we go on towards glory, we're in this cycle of confession and repentance and obedience. and And it keeps us humble. It keeps us knowing that we are not God. We have not arrived. We need the grace of God in our lives. We have a daily need to depart from iniquity to cleanse ourselves from dishonorable things inside and outside of us. Here's the question. How do I live this set-apart life? How do I do it? Um, I'd encourage you. I don't have time to read it this morning. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 7, 1. I encourage you to read that. It's kind of a deeper dive into this concept. It's kind of repeating the same thing Paul's saying. So if you want to write it down, 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 7, 1. Paul tells us how we do it. We do it by departing from iniquity. We do it by cleansing ourselves from everything impure. We look at the gospel and we see, man, I have been set apart by God. Praise God. I am safe. I am secure. He loves me. He is devoted to me. He knows me. He calls my name. He has chosen me for his purposes. Now, because of the truth of the gospel, let me go live in line with that calling. Let me live up, let me live a life worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Let me be holy as God is holy. Let me in all my conduct be holy because God who has called me to himself is holy. That is what it looks like. And here's a question for us. Is there anything right now in your life that is causing you to dishonor the name of Christ? Are there heart idols that you're living for and worshiping in your heart? Maybe your career or your paycheck or your spouse or your kids or uh, maybe it's your boat or maybe it's your weekends. And those are great gifts, but they are deadly gods. Is there anything in your life that you are living for in that way? Any good gift from God that you're making an idol? Is there anything that is defiling your heart and soul that you're partaking in? Is there defiling music? Is there questionable shows or movies? Are you scrolling on social media and you're just consuming mindlessly things that are, that are hurting your soul? And you walk away and it's like, man, I feel gross. Man, I feel heavy. Man, I feel disconnected. You put those things to death. Is there anything or anyone that is leading you astray? Any, any place that, that you're going, and it's like, man, when I go there, I, I cannot handle it. Or any person in your life where it's like, man, when I am around that, 
I, I can't do it. But you need to flee from if you can and run away from. Will you be radical in destroying every besetting sin, every lustful desire, every idol that stands in the way of your worship of the true king? And will you trust the power of the Holy Spirit in you, God with you to cleanse you as you partner with him to depart from iniquity? Listen, you have power, Christian, inside of you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he doesn't leave when you sin. You know that? It says he grieves with you. He stays there and he grieves. He is willing to sit in that nasty heart of yours and with you through your wanderings, through your evil thoughts. He's willing to sit in there and grieve with you so that he can be there when you turn back to him and call you back into holiness and to help you to obey. That is your God. Will you walk with him? Pursuing a life of purity, holiness, and righteousness is not anti-gospel. It's not legalism, right? It's the other half of the seal. It's the experience of the Christian. It's the experience of the joy of fellowship with God, the joy of readiness for his use, readiness for his work. It's the calling of the Christian life, right? But you got to get both halves. you got to both know that that I, I am not saved by my good works. I am saved by the electing grace of God, my Father, who chose me before the foundation of the world and said, that's my child. And I need to live a holy life because God said I'm holy, and therefore I need to live in line with that calling. So who is the church? Church is made up of those set apart by God and setting themselves apart for God. Here's the conclusion. The band wants to come on up. Um, so church, will you today renew confidence that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord? That the foundation that you're standing on is not going to move. It's not going to slip. That no matter how crazy our country gets, no matter how many wars we get into, no matter how much money you don't have in the bank account, like nothing's going to change the foundation of God's love for you and your faith in him, that it's solid. Will you today, Christian, be humbled that by God's grace alone, he knows you and has called you by name and you are his. It's grace. And will you today cleanse yourself from every defilement in and around your heart and life, so that you can be set apart as holy, so that you can be useful to God, so that you can be ready for every good work, so that you can experience a life of joy, walking in communion with God, walking in readiness to follow him and be a vessel, an honorable vessel for his good use. Will you today do that? I encourage you as you leave here um, after the service to, to not just skip over this, uh, it, it, conviction can burn, but, but conviction gets numb after a time. If we don't handle conviction when it comes to us, if we don't handle these truths, we just kind of let them go, then we become numb to it the next time around. I'd encourage you, dig in here. Read 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 7, 1. Dig in and ask the Lord, God, show me what you want me to walk away from this with. So let me pray. We're going to respond to this with a song um, after prayer, talking about destroying the idols in our hearts. Father, I... I pray, God, that you would do this in us. God, not that we would stand by passively um, while we expect you to do all the, all the weed eating in our lives, but that we would, relying on you, that you would call us to yourself and that we would depart, leave and never come back from the iniquity and the sin in our lives. God, that we would renew confidence that we are sealed, we are safe, we are secure, we are genuine because our seal is set by God himself. He never fails. God, I pray this morning that we would flee. We would flee those things in our lives that are leading us astray and have a, a renewed, wholehearted devotion to you, Jesus. We need you, Lord. We love you. 
Let us depart from idols. Let us flee from everything in our life that is leading us astray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Y'all stand up with me together. Let's worship God.